It's a great parlor game. <laughs> People say, tell me something about you I wouldn't know. And I say, well, I have a tattoo. And they say, no way. And I say, well, that's true. You haven't erased the GE part. No, no. I love the company. I, I, I always love the company. And that's the first time we've ever talked about tattoos on this podcast. We have that and a lot more ahead with former CEO of GE, Jeff Immelt. That's today on Leadership Next. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. Ellen McGirt and I spoke with Jeff Immelt last week. Uh, I've met Jeff several times over the years. I actually worked for him briefly, uh, 2002 to 2005, when I was at CNBC, interviewed him on a number of occasions, but I hadn't spoken with him since he was removed from his post at GE in 2017. And I think it's worth reminding everyone briefly of why his time at GE was so controversial. GE, after all, was America's company at the turn of the millennium. It made our dishwashers, our light bulbs, jet engines, uh, power plants, top 10 of the Fortune 500, led for years by iconic manager Jack Welch, uh, who Fortune at one point called the manager of the century. Uh, Jeff Immelt took over four days before 9-11. And for investors, at least, it seemed like everything went downhill from there. Uh, Over $100 billion in market cap just evaporated. Now, as I said earlier, Jeff's been pretty quiet since he left GE. He moved out to California a couple of years ago. He joined a VC firm. He teaches at Stanford. But now he's out with a new book called Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. So, of course, the first thing I wanted to know was... Why did he decide to write that book now? Yeah, Alan, you know, I, I've had kind of four years, almost four years to kind of sit and watch the way the company's been covered. And I really came to the conclusion that I felt the way that the GE team had been covered was either incomplete or at some points not true. And I, I felt like the team deserved a more complete history of what we all did together. So I'd say that's first and foremost on my mind. And then secondly, particularly in the pandemic, all all leadership is crisis leadership. And so I, I feel like, you know, over the twists and turns of my experience, there's things I learned that others can benefit from as well. So I, I'd say those are the two main reasons why I wrote the book. You know, Alan, I've kept my mouth shut for almost four years, right? And, <laughs> and, and so I've had plenty of time to sit back and think. But let me say, and we can get into the press coverage has been very tough of your 17 years as head of GE. I agree with that. And some of it came from our beloved Fortune magazine. But Jeff, the fundamental problem, as you well know, is that in 2000, GE was a company worth $600 billion, the largest company in the world in the you know, it was one of the holdings of widows and, and orphans and everybody who held stock. And it went from 600 billion to 100 billion. It, it just cratered. And I, I think that's really, you know, if, the, if there's been a tough appraisal, it's because so much, hundreds of billions of dollars of value and savings disappeared. And, and people want to know what happened. Mm-hmm. 
Look, I understand that, Alan. I, I think it's a complicated story. We try to tell it in the book without being defensive, with really being constructive. I think if you just look at the results over the time that I was CEO, we generated $280 billion of cash cumulatively. We had uh, almost $250 million of earnings. That was more than the previous 100 years combined of the company. We were number one in virtually all the businesses we were in. We had a good team, uh, well-respected. Your magazine had us number seven on the Fortune Most Admired in 2017. That matters. You know, so we had good initiatives inside the company. Uh, but the stock price didn't work, to your point. And I own that. It's complicated. I would say, you know, what I, what I say in Chapter 12 of the book is that wing to wing, we didn't get much value out of GE Capital, which was extremely highly valued in 2001. And, and so we, we went through lots of turbulence. And, you know, I, I guess what I want to get out there is the good with the bad, because, you know, it's a complicated story. The story behind what went wrong at GE is a complicated one. So I want to bring in another Jeff, Fortune's own Jeff Colvin. He's been following the company and its management for years now. And not too long ago, he wrote a feature for the magazine called What the Hell Happened at GE? Jeff, welcome back to Leadership Next. Thank you, Alan. It's great. Yeah, so I should point out in the introduction to his book, Jeff Immelt says the reason he wrote the book was because of you and the what the hell happened to GE story. I don't think he liked it. <laughs> he clearly did not like it. And what he says in the book is that he was teaching his class at Stanford at the time when the article was published. And so he just announced he was going to have a session where Anybody could come and ask him anything they wanted. And then finally, one student raised their hand and ML noticed that the article was on that person's desk. And the student said, how could you let this happen? And ML started talking. And he says in the book that as he talked through all of this, he realized he had a story to tell. Uh, he had previously thought maybe it would be better not to write a book. But after this, he realized he had a story to tell. And that's why he went ahead and wrote it. Jeff, you watched this thing play out for 17 years. You talked to a lot of people who were involved, got their side of the story. Did you come to any conclusions on what Immelt could have done differently to have a different outcome? Uh, yeah, I certainly did. And obviously, when anything as big as this, good or bad, happens. There's never just one reason. It's always a number of reasons. But when I asked many people or across a broad spectrum, what was the trouble there? Mo almost all of them, maybe all of them, said first, capital allocation. The simple nuts and bolts of deciding where to put the capital and where not to put it. ML has said with apparent pride that he is the only CEO of any company he believes, who has ever bought and sold more than $100 billion worth of businesses. He was very, very active in allocating capital, but an awful lot of those choices just didn't work out well. Too, too uh, often he bought high and sold low. He really did. There are many examples. I mean, when he got it, you know, right after 9-11, he got into the homeland security business ended up selling it for less than he paid for. He got into the oil business when oil was at $100 a barrel, uh, went down to 50. Got into uh, subprime mortgages just before that cratered in the financial crisis. And he spent many billions of dollars buying back 
GE stock at prices that turned out to be the highest in his tenure. So, yes, he did a lot of what you just said. Yeah. One of the things he talks about that you don't very often read about in books like this is the role of luck. He had to run that company through not just 9-11, but the financial crisis and, and the dissolution of GE Capital. And all of that took a, clearly took a toll on the company. How big a role do you think luck played? Well, clearly, events that were unexpected, unpredictable, played a huge role. In fact, if you look back over his entire tenure, what you see is that the company never really recovered from the financial crisis. So you could say, well, look, you know, no one could have anticipated that. On the other hand, you could say, well, but he caused some of that trouble because he really bulked up GE Capital in the boom years just before the crisis, and GE Capital was the center of GE's trouble when the financial crisis hit. I wanted to ask about your ascendance to the CEO role and whether or not you feel that you were dealt a nearly impossible hand. The next day was the tax on 9-11. You're following an unusually charismatic and beloved leader who had been very publicly attached to not only the brand of GE, but the brand of leadership. Did you feel that your tenure through GE prepared you for what was going to come next? Oh, I, I think, look, I mean, <laughs> your magazine voted Jack the best leader for the previous hundred years. So, you know, that's a pretty high bar. <laughs> that is a tough, I'm, yeah, uh, I hear that. Honestly, I Ellen, hear that. You know, the world, I, I, I never viewed myself as a victim and I, I never wanted a hot seat to be a victim story. The world just changed so dramatically, right? It became more global. It became more technical. You know, the, the notion of taking industrial earnings, levering it at eight to one, getting a, a, a premium, a tech multiple on financial service earnings, mm. those days were just going to end. And I think, you know, what we tried to do was in a way that could bring investors with us, slowly transition from just being so heavy in G capital to having better technology and life sciences, renewable energy, avionics. And basically that was working up until 2007, 2008. And then the financial crisis hit and that was a whole new story. So I liked working for Welch. I thought he was a good leader, but the world was extremely different and our job was to bring the G team with us into a new set of circumstances. You tell another story in the book about going to play a round of golf in Chicago right before you took over the job. Tell that story, please, because it's yeah, Alan. Precious. So again, in the in the beginning of the book, I went every summer to play with uh, three friends at Skokie Country Club, and so this was in uh, August, and I was just about ready to take over from Jack in September, and I'm putting on my shoes. <laughs> And the guy walks up and introduces himself to me and says, who are you? What do you do? And I say, well, I'm, my name's Jeff and I work at GE. He says, GE, Jack Welch. I feel sorry for that poor son of a bitch that's going to take his job. <laughs> so that was, uh, but again, guys, I, I think if you read the book, I don't portray myself or any of us as victims. I think we did our best. We got up every day. We did our best through thick and thin, and some things worked, some things didn't. I'm sorry, Ellen. I, I'm gonna, I, I will no, let no, you. I know no, you no. have going, like 10 going. questions I'm enjoying you this. Ask, but you do talk in this book. I, I, as you know, Jeff, I've known you for a long time. 
I read a lot of management books. I got a whole bookshelf here full of management books. You talk about something that I never read about in management books, which is the role of luck. Yeah, that's true. Were you just unlucky? Again, <laughs> not a victim. To do what we needed to get done, you know, Alan, I couldn't have the global financial crisis. You know, in other words, I couldn't get stuck in midstream and take a torpedo right in the middle of the boat. So we were a $42 stock in September of 2007. You know, the industrial businesses were all working. We had started the shift. Should we have known better? Is that luck? People write about that for the next 100 years. I think about today, I think about COVID. I think Delta Airlines is a well-managed company. I think Zoom is okay, right? We're all getting those Zoom. <laughs> Zoom is worth more than every airline combined. And Delta's stock is down 70% from pre-COVID. So I think that's luck. You know, I, I just think sometimes you have tailwind and sometimes you have headwind. GE is a fun company to run when you have tailwind. It's <laughs> amazing. It is so much fun. I can't even describe it. It is a bitch to run when you have, you know, when you're, when you're spending your entire, like in 2008, we would spend an entire board meeting on bailing out GE Capital. Right. And then in the last 15 minutes, I'd say, well, we do have an aircraft engines business as well. We do have NBC. We do have a few other things we have to think about here, guys. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing environment. You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the longstanding hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking, because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. I know that you're working in a venture capacity. So I'm curious, what are some of the young entrepreneurs asking you? What do they need to know? Oh, I think it's, uh, you know, particularly this year, it's crisis management. You, you know, it's kind of like, what did it feel like during the financial crisis? And so I kind of tell them, look, as a leader, you have to absorb fear. It, do it doesn't mean that you're not listening, but you, you need to kind of not blurt out everything that's on your mind. The ability to hold two truths at the same time, that good things can happen, but the worst can happen. So you need a flexible point of view. You need to be a great communicator, and then you need to be an optimist. The reason why I wanted to work in venture is because I wanted to think small again. I thought big for 35 years, and so I spent a lot of time on scaling. I'd say 
the one thing Jack was better than any human being that's ever lived was running an enterprise at scale. Hmm. That, that raises an interesting question, Jeff. If you go back, you know, if you look back over the 17 years and say, what could I have done differently? Was the problem that there was just too much scale and too much complexity? Should you have back at the very beginning said, you know, uh, GE just doesn't work. We got to break this thing up. Kind yeah. of what Siemens has just done, right? You know, look, I was tough on myself. And, or I try to be tough on myself in the book. And I talk about the things that I would have done. I, I, had, a, I had a brief window of time after 9-11 when I think I could have reset the company at just a slower growth rate. You know, particularly given everything that was happening in the aviation industry, I think to your point, reshaping GE Capital earlier, spinning businesses out, really reframing GE Capital, I think that was uh, that was really critical, and, and I could have done that better. I, I think uh, we didn't have enough talent for the what we were trying to do, all the initiatives. And you know, Alan, I think about this a lot. You know, we had a great team, we had great people, but we made our businesses too big in order to create efficiency. And I wish we, instead of having eight big P&Ls, I wish we had had a hundred smaller P&Ls. Hmm. And so we were, we were driving for efficiency and scale instead of nimbleness and training the next generation of leaders. And I, I view that as my fault completely. And then at the end, you know, I gave the board too much to work on. At the end, we were doing Succession, we were doing Alston, we were doing other things, and it was just a lot. You know, as I'm listening to you and and looking and reflecting on all the conversations that we've had with so many extraordinary CEOs who are thinking about what this moment means for business and for leaders and succession de and leadership development, we spend a lot of time talking about the shifting nature of capitalism. That you know, we have to think about stakeholders in a more powerful way now. And I'm curious how you are getting up to speed on all of that, you know, from the business roundtable announcement on forward, and how you think that entrepreneurs and younger leaders moving ahead today can build more sustainable companies than they might have ordinarily if they weren't thinking about community and purpose and things like that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. The job that CEOs have today is infinitely harder than it was in 2000 or 2010 for a number of different reasons, a lot of which you just mentioned. You know, I'm a legacy guy. I worked for the same company for 35 years. The only people that are getting rewarded now are people who are taking swings, okay? And so I think the playbook, you know, beyond just the how do you become a more purposeful company, I think the playbook is if you're not willing to take swings, even if you're a legacy company, you're, you're missing what people are looking for, both talent and also investors. Fascinating. Hey, uh, Jeff, I, we've, we focused on the things you may have gotten wrong. I want to focus on a couple of things I think you got right, if I'm allowed to do that. One was the whole environmental push in 2006, 2007, eco-imagination. You saw this coming. You led the way in getting businesses to move out of a defensive crouch and into a, a more aggressive approach, U.S. cap and all of that. But then it kind of it was maybe another casualty of the financial crisis. Then it all kind of went away and it's been a decade. We're only now getting back to it. Were you just too early or what happened there? Yeah, look, I think, you know, I think there's, there was a certain sense of being too early. You know, Alan, I think what you learn on these initiatives 
is you have to stick with them for a long period of time to get change. And I think that a confluence of both real climate events plus politics are kind of pushing people forward today in a way that wasn't true in 2008 or 2009. If you kind of look up, you know, GE has probably a $15 billion wind business now. So that's good, right? That doesn't happen just by luck. And so that's, uh, there's real businesses that can be built. And the last thing I would say, you know, Alan, is that even today with all the discussion, there still hasn't been painted a transition for the economy of how we're going to get from where we are today to what the future is going to look like. So it's still not easy to invest in the space, right? And I, I associate with a lot of companies that are in the clean tech space. So it's been hit or miss if you look at, not just for yeah. GE, but for the world over the past decade. But boy, there are a lot of people focusing on it right now. I mean, if you look at what, well, Larry, sure. Larry, Larry Fink's letter, you know, I was just talking yeah. to some people at Goldman about what they're doing. Yeah. There seems to be a sense that we have hit an inflection point. I, no doubt about it. Do you think the same is true with race and racial equity? As you were exiting GE, things were really heating up. I established the race beat at Fortune in, in 2016, thinking it was going to be a very different experience, to be honest. I'd just be interviewing interesting chief diversity officers and telling people not to be racist at Halloween and, and, and you know, just like a much more <laughs> mellow experience. And next thing I know, you know, I'm, I'm having big, deep conversations with corporate leaders about Confederate monuments and our incredibly complicated history. So I'm curious how you, if you think we're at an inflection point about about that and having those kinds of conversations and rethinking how we source and develop talent. Look, I think I think it's, um, it's so true. I think my observation is it's the only initiative. So my first diversity training was 1985. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. 1985. Okay. And it's the only initiative that, and I'm talking not just GE, but corporate America where outcome metrics are never focused on. Yeah. Everybody focuses on process. Everybody focuses on feeling good and better and we're doing well and all this stuff. And at the end of the day, unless you can recruit better, retain better. But if you look at the officers of companies and boardrooms of companies, I think metrics matter. And I think that's the, in my, you know, everybody is, has a difference between, you know, in their own mind, they internalize what is equality mean and what does equity mean? To me, equity means outcomes, right? It means, it means if, with no results, it's just conversation. And I think in some ways, the debate has finally hit what really matters. Yeah, you're, you're warming our hearts by saying that, Jeff. We have a new partnership with Refinitiv that's focused right on that. We are totally. asking companies to be public about their diversity statistics so that people can actually hold them accountable and keep track of how they're doing. We're making some progress. It's a slow climb, but I think it's important. I think, it's, you know, Alan, look, I, when I'm in California, I, I teach a little bit at Stanford. I lived in downtown Palo Alto for three years. Look, you walk down downtown Palo Alto, you don't see one African-American family, right? And yet it's the it's the height of liberalism in the country. And you just want to say, guys, just shut up until you see actions taking place. And so I think that's where we need to be tough on each other. And, and again, I it's one of those things where I continue to I just took, you know, like unconscious bias training. I'm 64. 
Like I said, you know, this is like <laughs> my first diversity training was longer ago than the trainer is old. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you're going to have a TikTok before you know it. You're going to be you're going to go viral before you know it. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> Jeff, I got I have three other things from the book I have to ask you about. You wrote the book, so we're allowed to ask you about the things you wrote in it. Yeah. The first one is there was criticism you know, I don't know. The stock price when you took over was close to 60 bucks. When you left, it was close to 10. Uh, and there were people who said you, you did a lot of stock buybacks in between. And there were critics who said, what in the heck are you doing with shareholders money here? You seem to be trying to prop up the stock price. But in the end, it was a very, very bad investment. How do you respond to that? So just, you know, again, not to be defensive, but when I left, the stock was 28, not 10, but it ended up at 10 after I left. But I, I hear what you're saying. No, fair point. You don't have to own what happened after you you were gone. Look, the capital allocation choice we made turned out to be wrong in 2015 and 16. It wasn't for lack of deep analytical work. You, you know, we were exiting G Capital. We had some big acquisitions on the table that we needed to integrate. We really felt like we knew a lot about the balance sheet and all the aspects of, you know, we had been six years as a systemic institution governed by the Fed. So the board and I felt like the balance sheet had never been stronger and well accounted for and things like that. But those assumptions turned out not to be right. So I hear the criticism. But believe me, it wasn't for lack of diligence and focus and trying. The second of my three things, and Ellen, I'll just get through these and when the pain is over, Jeff, you can get a question from Ellen. The second of, of my questions is there, after you left, there was this story that built up about the people around you were afraid to tell you the truth. And they sort of, uh, there was talk about success theater. Everything was, oh yeah, we're doing great and ignoring the underlying problems. You feel pretty strongly that was not what was going on. Look, your point earlier, Alan, for 15 years, I heard almost nothing but bad news. <laughs> so, you know, I find this to be I, I find this to be one of those things that I'm surprised people don't dismiss it out of hand. And I did 90 weekends with GE leaders over the course of 2010 to 2017. And this would just be one on ones on a Saturday morning. And the whole goal was to tell me something I don't know. Right. So I talk in the book about the individual that was running the water business, which I had bought, telling me on a Saturday morning we were losing. We were never going to be successful. We argued for an entire morning and I got up that Monday and decided to sell the business. Right. Sharon walking in my office the day Washington Mutual went bankrupt and saying, We've got to do an $18 billion equity raise next week. <laughs> Believe me, I didn't want to hear that at all. You know, those kinds of things, Alan. So you don't buy it. Okay. I just, you know, again, did I listen to everybody? No, I didn't. There's not enough time. But did I listen that. to a lot of people? I did. Okay. So the last one, and this is the really big one. I have to tell you, this is was the eye opener for me in the book because I, you and I have known each other and had many conversations over the years. This I did not know. Your tattoo. What? For, for <laughs> what sure. chapter is that? <laughs> Tell us the chapter, tattoo story. Chapter 10. Okay. So I've always liked tattoos. And my daughter, when she was in high school, she's 34 now. I always used to tease her that I was going to get a tattoo. And she would say, yeah, dad, you're all talk, no action. So I was in the office on a Saturday morning in Fairfield. 
I drove to Danbury, <laughs> went to just a tattoo parlor off the street. I got the GE logo with initials of my wife and my daughter on my right, right here. And it's a great parlor game. <laughs> so people say, tell me something about you. I wouldn't know. And I said, well, I have a tattoo. And they say, no way. And I said, well, that's true. You haven't erased the GE part. No, no. I love the company. I, I, I always love the company. Listeners, I just want to be clear. We're on Zoom here. And Mr. Jeff Immelt just pointed to his hip, I think. <laughs> Left hip. It's covered, though. It's covered, Ellen. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot of thought that goes into where to get a tattoo uh-huh. in a way that's not going to hurt so badly. But no one will ever really know unless you show them. And so. won't show up in board meetings unless they go very <laughs> yeah. badly. The late George Schultz, who who died just a couple of days ago at the age of yeah, 100, was said to have a Princeton Tiger tattooed on his rear end. Yeah. I can't vouch well, for Well, I have it a GE meatball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to fast forward to chapter 10, clearly. Yeah. So I, if it's okay, I'd love to ask the Philosopher King questions. And this one is about trust. And I've been thinking a lot about trust. We all have lately. Government seems to be off the rails in some really terrifying ways, just not in the U.S., but around the world. There's a lot of division. It's clear that businesses needs to pick up the slack on some of these big pressing social issues. And also, as I was preparing for this call, I was thinking about GE. You know, when I was a kid, I'm not that much younger than you, Jeff. When I was a kid, you know, this was a brand that we loved and trusted. It kept our food cold. It kept our homes lit. We sort of thought we knew what it was, and it was an important part of the American story. And I'm curious how you think about restoring trust in business, restoring dignity to workers. You know, what are the elements that we need to be thinking now from a 10,000-foot view that will make the really hard work that we all have to do together going forward easier? It's in some ways a, such an expansive question that I, I think, you know, in my business career, when I had a business that was struggling, I would always, and let's say you had to bring in a new leadership team, like maybe like the country, hmm. I would always come in and say, okay, let's do one thing well together. Let's do one, let's, let's start with one thing. So if you think of the country, it's let's get COVID right. Let's really, if President Biden just got COVID right and demonstrated the ability to get vaccines to people, and I, I don't just mean the health piece, I mean the economic piece as well. And all the other things around climate change, all those other things will fall in place if our fellow citizens just begin to believe in competency that our government can do one thing well. And then I go to a company and say, how do you build trust with workers that they believe that you're investing in them and in the future? So if you're cutting R&D, if you're pulling back around the world, if you're slashing things all the time, you're not going to build trust because people believe that you don't care about the future. And the last piece is we just have to demonstrate that we care about middle class jobs. Mm. We, we just have to act, you know. And so I, I was in the generation that basically felt like we could move work wherever we wanted to, whenever we wanted to, and people would still love us. That turned out not to be true. And I think we ran that play as a, a me. I'm blaming myself. We ran that play for way too long. And then the last thing I would say is business people love to join groups, the business council, the business roundtable. We signed petitions with 250 names on them. My favorites are always people that stand alone, stand apart. 
So when all the stuff with President Trump came down, you know, Alan, like we did with Ecoimagination, we were alone when we started that. I hearken back to Ken Frazier, right? It's safe for everybody now to say they didn't like Trump. But Ken Frazier did it when it was unsafe. In a regulated he, industry. He did, exactly. He did it at a time when he was alone. And so I think as we celebrate businesses speaking up, we need to double down on people like Ken who did it when it wasn't easy and be more like him. Yeah, courage. That, that is a, a, a great way to end. Jeff Immelt, really great book, great conversation. Thank you for being so open and honest and taking all our obnoxious questions and for being with <laughs> us. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Good to see you. Good to see you again, guys. Thanks. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 